You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On The Feed, we learn more about Girls, Inc. and how they inspire girls to be smart, strong, and bold. Also on the show, we celebrate the traditions of Hanukkah, and we hit the big screen with a few holiday classics and the films already receiving Oscar buzz. But we begin with a few reminders from York Regional Police about navigating the roads during those wintry conditions. Afua Ba in the driver's seat for this one. It's not officially winter yet, but we can safely say that we are officially in winter driving mode. Considering the amount of uh, snow events that we've had over the past couple of weeks, we need to make sure that we adjust our driving according to the weather conditions. Now, of course, sometimes it can happen where drivers can be a little bit rusty when it comes to winter driving skills. So joining me to chat today is Constable Laura Nicole with York Regional Police, here to provide some winter driving safety tips for motorists across the region. Thank you so much for joining me today, Constable Nicole. Thank you. Anytime. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, I know we've had a number of snow events recently, and of course, it has caused an, a spike in collisions across Ontario. Um, if you could just let us know, maybe some brief general tips uh, when going out on the road and having to deal with the snow when you're driving. So we have to kind of collectively say we're going to be all slowing down and driving more carefully. If you see, you know, we're calling for really bad weather and and going somewhere is not um, absolutely necessary for you, then that might be just a day to say, well, I'm I'm just going to stay home and avoid being on the road altogether. It doesn't look good um, and better better to be safe. And I think that's that needs to be the priority for people. Um, we are going to be experiencing slower days in the winter and. And safety needs to be the primary concern. Um, you may see people out on the road who are who are driving, you know, slower than you'd like to go, and it's frustrating for people. But you know what? If that's the speed that they can they can maneuver safely, well, then that's what it has to be. Um, and certainly, you know, if you're involved in a collision, uh, that is going to be a way bigger delay than just simply slowing down your vehicle a little bit. Uh, so a few tips that we suggest, um, you know, kind of prior to heading out. Um, certainly, you know what, snow tires make a great a great bit of difference. Um, you'll have a, a lot better traction and uh, you'll, you'll actually find, you know, your stopping um, is improved. Uh, it doesn't solve everything, though. So if, whether you have snow tires or you don't, you need to give yourself a lot more time. Uh, you need to give yourself a lot more space. So leaving more space between yourself and other vehicles in front of you. Um, if you're approaching an intersection or a stop sign, you need to give yourself more time to stop as you're as you're coming up to that. Um, paying attention on hills. I mean, if you're going up a hill, you may hit a spot where, you know, your kind of tires are spinning and you start to slide. Um, that's something to anticipate and, and to think about and uh, to try to avoid if you can, you know, steer away from roads that you know are not being uh, maintained as well as other roads. Um, and, and checking ahead can give you that extra time to sort of plan. Um, make sure you've got your washer fluid topped up before you go. And before you, you get out on the road, if you if you didn't park in the garage and you're on the driveway and your car's covered in snow, clear your car off completely. Um, people, You see people rush and, and hit, get out on the road and they've got big chunks of ice flying at vehicles behind them. That's incredibly unsafe and you could be causing a collision. 
Um, you've got to clear off your, your brake lights and your uh, headlights as well so that other vehicles can see you better. Um, same with the windshield and, and, the, and the windows. You know, you can't just give yourself a tiny little space. You're going to be missing something and could potentially be uh, causing issues out on the road. Um, when we have weather conditions like this, I mean, it's more important than ever to be wearing your seatbelt, putting away the cell phone and avoiding distractions, um, and, and being sober when you're driving. Um, you know, any, any little bit of sort of impairment or, or sort of removal of your full attention can be very, very dangerous. Um, the roads are, like I said, it, it can be really scary when people are driving and, and they're not giving it their full attention. So um, that's incredibly important. Uh, we did put out a, a video with some, um, some tips and kind of a it, it's a it's a good video so uh, I'd encourage you to, to watch it and uh, there's more tips on our website as well for for people specifically about you know driving and maneuvering your vehicle more safely um, for people who are not comfortable maybe new drivers or people who are you know just wanting to to practice um, you know you can find a safe place to just sort of you know practice like a parking lot or somewhere that you're comfortable. Um, that might have some snow buildup and, and you can kind of see the difference of your car. How, how does it turn? How does it, you know, just, just get yourself familiar and comfortable with it under safe conditions where you're not rushing or you're not, um, you know, feeling pressured by a lot of other vehicles around you. Uh, it's a great, great way to sort of just get comfortable with a different feel because, you know, I think we've all experienced that feeling of I'm trying to turn and my car's not turning or I'm trying to stop and the car's not stopping. Um, it's definitely very uh, scary in, in the first time you experience that. So, um, you want to be able to get used to these things and, and learn to, to plan around it and maneuver around it. I think that's a great point that you mentioned there, because a lot of times when people get into that uh, scenario where their car is starting to go out of control, then the panic sets in. And then it's, it's almost like steering wheel here, steering wheel there. Oh, my gosh, nothing's happening. And then it almost makes the situation worse. Whereas uh, if if the proper way or the proper knowledge as to how to sort of steer out of those situations would probably help maybe cut a lot of the collisions that happen um, that are mostly single vehicle collisions. Yeah, and you know, I, I think a lot of us probably did, you know, drivers training and sessions and things uh, in in good conditions. But probably not a lot of people have taken a specific course on, you know, to, uh, driving um, course in winter weather. So that might be something that to look at, you know, or or like I said, just even just going out and practicing under safe conditions. Um, and you have to remember too, I, I learned this once learning to drive that your vehicle only does really one thing well at a time. So if you're trying to steer and brake at the same time, you're almost kind of undermining one or the other. Um, so, you know, you, you want to make sure that, again, you feel comfortable with, with the way your car responds and maneuvers in those winter conditions before you put yourself out on the road uh, in a rush or, or under any of those kinds of circumstances. Okay. All right. So those are some great um, prevention-like tips. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. If you end up getting on the road and unfortunately you do get into a collision, what does one do? Because I know first thing, sometimes they might think I have to get out of my car and check how much damage is on my vehicle. Is that necessarily the first thing that you should do? No. Um, certainly, you know, it's just stay calm. Take a minute just to make sure that you're okay. Um, and, you know, call 911 right away if you're injured or hurt or somebody in your vehicle or you, you think that somebody else might be injured, um, call 911 right away to get emergency services out there to help uh, who's ever hurt. Um, but one of the big things is, is you know, are you in a safe location? Because your vehicle could potentially uh, be hit by other traffic on the roads. Um, if you get out of the car, again, you could be stepping out right into a live lane of traffic who, you know, they don't have time to respond, right? Especially when we're talking about this winter driving, um, cars behind 
behind you, coming towards you, they're going to be in the same issue. They may not be able to brake as quickly or as quickly maneuver away from the collision as as, as they might in, in better driving conditions. Um, so thinking about where you are, if you can move your vehicle off the road into a safer location, that might be something worth considering um, depending on you know where you are and what the collision looks like and, and whether your vehicle is drivable. Um, but damages, I mean, damages is kind of the last concern. Your personal well-being and your safety and that of everybody else around you needs to be the, the primary concern. Um, so certainly calling police and uh, and ambulance and fire immediately if, if there's an injury. Um, you know, you also want to call police right away if you think that there may be somebody involved who's impaired or that uh, some type of an offense has taken place. Um, that's that's a that's a big concern. Um, anytime there's a collision involving a pedestrian or a cyclist or the other driver is uncooperative, um, you want to make sure you get uh, police there to assist with that. Um, damage to other property on the road. I mean, if you strike a, a sign, for example, or a hydro pole, um, those can be some pretty major concerns. So you need to call emergency services to, to attend those types of collisions right away way as well um, or any 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 incidents that involve uh, you know potentially dangerous or hazardous materials um, if there's a big truck involved and something might be leaking uh, we have to get out there right away um, but if if you know if two people are involved in in a very you know sort of minor collision um, you know if there's a little little scratch or something in a parking lot um, that may be a situation where you don't need to necessarily report it to the police if both people are um, you know cooperative and working together and the damage does appear to be minor then you want to make sure that uh, that you and the other driver exchange your information your driver's license ownership and insurance information and then uh, you may be able to um, uh, report that incident directly to your insurance company without police being involved. So there's a ton of more information on, on uh, reporting collisions and, and when to call police and, and what uh, circumstances you're able to, uh, you know, for example, attend a collision reporting center versus calling an officer to the scene. Um, that's all available on our website also. All right. Perfect. Constable Laura Nicole with York Regional Police, thank you so much. Uh, once again, just reminding us, giving us a refresher as to how to maneuver the roads during the wintertime. I know sometimes it may seem repetitive, but All in all, all we want is to make sure that everyone makes it to their destination safely. Constable Nicole, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. The holiday season is upon us, and Hanukkah, like so many other celebrations, has traditions associated with it. Netta Sarshar with a story about the Festival of Lights. Joining me today to speak about Hanukkah and the traditions and history behind it is Rabbi Mendel Zeltzman of the Jewish Russian Community Center, the JRCC, located in Thornhill. Thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi Mendel. Thank you for having me. So what are some important things that you feel everyone should know about Hanukkah? I would say it's a time to celebrate. It's about forces of light being victorious over forces of darkness. And it's about freedom of religion, something that we're so thankful to have here in Canada. And what's the history of Hanukkah? How did it come to be? So Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, is an eight-day festival, which recalls the victory more than 2,100 years ago of a military weak but spiritually strong Jewish people over the mighty forces of a ruthless enemy that overran the Holy Land and wanted to put all of us into spiritual darkness. And so the victory of religious freedom compounded with the miracle that took place in the Holy Temple. There was just a small jug of sacred oil found that was pure and sealed. The Maccabees poured the one day of supply into the menorah, rekindled it, and miraculously it lit for 
a full eight days until new pure oil arrived. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. And is that why a menorah is also lit even today? Exactly. So the traditional celebration that we have today, recalling that is by lighting a menorah each night, adding a candle each night until we get to the full eight days, which is an expression of the physical miracle as well as the actual triumph signified by light of the freedom over oppression, spirit over matter, light over darkness. We have a lot of food with oil connected to the miracle with oil. So we have jelly donuts, latkes, other stuff fried with oil. And obviously family gatherings to celebrate and talk about the miracles that God does for us. And this is done over the course of eight days. Correct. And on the eighth day, is there a final tradition or ceremony? So there are celebrations that take place throughout the eight days. I wouldn't say the eighth day specifically. Uh, I guess dealing with the different days of the week, it's whatever comes out more convenient for different communities. We will be having two very large celebrations on the first day of Hanukkah. That's on Sunday, December 22nd. We have a Hanukkah Wonderland that takes place at 9600 Bathurst Street from 11 to 4. It's an event that has about 1,000 people, um, mostly focused on kids. It's a carnival, booths, rides, food court, and music, and shows, etc. And then that evening, we have a giant menorah lighting that takes place at Melasman Square at 6. It's with many dignitaries. We have a, a large 13-foot menorah that's put up right there at the square that we're going to light and have dignitaries' greetings together with music and traditional Hanukkah foods. Amazing. That sounds fantastic. Um, something I've always wondered is the middle candle in the menorah, does that have a special significance? So actually, we're talking about an eight-day holiday, and when you count, you have nine candles, right? That's right. So there's the eight regular candles, and the middle one that's usually either higher or lower is what we call a service candle. So in a traditional menorah, which isn't electric, it's candles, you would have the one that you would use to, to light all the rest. I see. That's really the traditional and significance of it. And I guess that also carries into the symbolism of using each other to carry a unified light. Exactly. Every, every person has to realize that he has the ability to be a candle to light other people's candle. So what are some of the other values that a traditional Hanukkah ceremony tries to convey to everybody who participates? Look, it's really about warmth, spirituality, celebrating together realizing that there's a deeper meaning and uh, and soulful meaning to everything. What are some different ways of saying Happy Hanukkah? So you can say Happy Hanukkah in every language. I mean, Happy Hanukkah in English is one way of doing it. Hanukkah Sameach would be the translation of that to Hebrew. In Yiddish, we say Afrelech in Hanukkah, or in Russian, you would say Shaslivi Hanukkah. But it's really just the word Hanukkah with happy because it's that type of a holiday. It's a holiday of... Of, of just excitement and happiness. Does the word Hanukkah itself mean something? So the word Hanukkah is, comes from two Hebrew words, which means Hanu Chavhei, rested on the 25th, because the holiday of Hanukkah and the Hebrew calendar starts on the 25th of the month, which was the day that the Maccabees actually won the war. The secondary meaning to the word Hanukkah is rededication or dedication, which is part of what, what the miracle of Hanukkah ended with, which is where they were able to rededicate the temple, which was desecrated during the early period of the war. The victory of it meant that the Maccabees were able to re-enter the Holy Temple in Jerusalem and rededicate it. 
the one thing that I would say is that for our community, Hanukkah has a very special significance, dealing with uh, and being the Jewish-Russian community center. We're a community that many of us grew up in the former Soviet Union where we didn't have that freedom of religion that we celebrate on Hanukkah. If somebody wanted to light a menorah there, they had to do it in hiding. And any type of Jewish celebration had to be done in hiding. So for us to be able to celebrate Hanukkah the way we do today in Canada, it's like our own Hanukkah miracle and our own very special celebration. And that's why we have this special feeling to the public menorah lighting that we do at Melasman Square because the idea of celebrating it even more in public and having government officials come and congratulate and talk about it just brings that to the special heights of celebration. That's fantastic. And can you talk a little more about the JRCC? How long have you all been in the community and been established and been celebrating Hanukkah uh, within York Region and the GTA? So the JRCC, the Jewish-Russian Community Center, started here in Toronto in 1980 when the Lubavitcher Rebbe sent my father, Rabbi Yosef Zaltzman, to start up, in essence, a community with the local immigrants that were just arriving. Obviously, a big part of the community joined through the 80s, but mostly in the early and late 90s as the former Soviet Union allowed its citizens to actually leave from behind the Iron Curtain. We've been doing these celebrations and many different holiday programs ever since. The menorah lighting ceremony started in 1988, actually, as Mel Asman Square was built by the request of then-Mayor Mel Asman, Mayor of, of North York and then-Mayor of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi Mendel, and have a happy Hanukkah. Thank you for inviting us all out to celebrate Hanukkah with you and the JRCC at Mel Lasman Square. Thank you, and we look forward to celebrating with everyone together. All the best. Next on the feed, let's go to the movies. Well, tis the season to take in a holiday movie, whether you're watching television, any other platform, or you decide to go to the movie theater. Wonderful guest right now on the feed, Cam Maitland, film and content specialist at Hollywood Suite. What a pleasure to get to know you. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Well. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk movies this holiday season. Oh, especially with those of us who love to sit in the dark. That would be moi. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cam, let's talk about the traditional movies that we find on, on television or away from the big screen. Uh, some of the older ones that may have been my parents' favorite uh, and maybe the ones that are not quite classics yet. Sure. I mean, I, I think probably the big one is White Christmas, right? This is the one that everybody thinks about. It's got the big uh, musical numbers. It's all lush and colorful. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of interesting older movies that just through airing on TV have become traditional Christmas movies. I know a lot of people sit down to something like The Sound of Music or uh, The Wizard of Oz, for instance, and that was all just because they aired a lot on cable over the holidays. They're long movies, so, you know, they can fill up the spots. <laughs> so it's interesting, you know, everything from uh, Miracle on 34th Street, which is explicitly, you know, gives you that Christmas feeling, to kind of just uh, family movies that gather people around really, really seem to ring uh, and touch people. And hilarious movies that have been made in the past decade or two. I think of Elf, for instance, which is quickly becoming a favorite, and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. 
Yeah, there is something about a comedy, I think, uh, partially because the, the season's so tense, you know. <laughs> uh, people are always looking for a bit of an alternative. Uh, and I think that those movies actually become classics a lot quicker because people are so hungry for, you know, uh, just a different kind of emotion from the nostalgia. If you think also of movies like uh, Gremlins or Die Hard, movies that have that Christmas setting and a real Christmas feel, but are, are maybe a different genre, I think are something that, that really turn around quickly from uh, just a blockbuster to a regular Christmas staple. I can't believe that you uh, feel that Die Hard has become kind of associated with Christmas, <laughs> but I totally understand why. It was a Christmas party that Bruce Willis's wife uh, on the in the movie was attending, and so the Christmas theme was kind of throughout the movie. But now I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies. There's a, there's a bunch actually, especially in the 1980s. Uh, the writer Shane Black, who made Lethal Weapon, A Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, he really loved setting movies at Christmas. And I think that there's something where uh, it's fun to decorate a set like Christmas. <laughs> so I think if you're choosing to set a movie in a particular period, there's a lot of movies that you just forget our Christmas movies. Things like uh, Little Women or The Thin Man, all these movies just take place at Christmas. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting time where people are hanging out. So I, I think that there's a lot of movies that might surprise you. And, you know, you think about what has just come out, movies like Knives Out, and I know the director uh, felt that it was appropriate that it would be rolled out through American Thanksgiving leading up to the Christmas and Hanukkah holidays because it allows you to see that there are families in worse shape than yours. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that movie is, once again, it's like lush colors. Everyone's got a wonderful sweater on. <laughs> There's something about those those fall and Christmassy and wintry movies that even if it doesn't explicitly, explicitly deal with, you know, Hanukkah or Christmas, you still get that holiday feeling just because winter kind of brings that out in you. And your family looks better than what you see on the screen, <laughs> how they get along. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now, you mentioned Little Women. That is uh, the nineteen or the 2019 version is opening on Christmas Day here in, in uh, the greater Toronto Horseshoe area. Uh, also, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, is opening prior to the big day. We're looking at Cats as well as Jumanji, 1917, The Aeronauts, all kinds of movies coming from all kinds of uh, forces, if you will, not just the regular movie production houses that we're so familiar with. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really kind of interesting uh, holiday season. I think that you don't you usually get a lot of Oscar-y movies, and there's a couple of those. I think Little Women is, is really an awards hopeful, and 1917, the World War One movie that's coming out. But there's a, kind of a little bit of something for everyone. I know this uh, Jumanji sequel, I really enjoyed the last one. It was a very kind of silly, family-friendly comedy, and I think that it, it could really be another great sequel. Um, again, if you want to go real far off the beaten path, uh, there's a remake of the Canadian classic Black Christmas. So if you like a uh, scary horror movie over the holidays, uh, that's an option, and I'm sure it's very Christmassy, much like uh, the original version. But yeah, I think, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be talking about Star Wars and Cats. I mean, obviously, 
Star Wars is huge. Everybody's waiting. This is the final film in this saga. It's been building up over decades. And Cats, I think everyone was buzzy about that trailer. I don't think any, everyone's quite sure about it, but you can't deny that the Cats musical is, is it's just one of the highest grossing musicals of all time. It's one of the most popular stage productions of all time. So even if you just count people that like Cats, the show... I think Cats is going to be huge. Let's talk about the experience, the theater experience. I know, for instance, uh, Cineplex is uh, going to create something called Junction in 2020, and it's a 45,000-square-foot experience, if you will, trying to get more people into theaters. Uh, that's their hope and their desire. What is it about the movie theater experience that you like so much? Uh, I think, I mean... I'll admit I have a great TV. Obviously, I work for a cable company. Yes. I enjoy watching movies at home. But I think that there's certain movies that still work in a theater. Whether you're talking about a huge action movie like Rise of the Skywalker, or I often find foreign films are better at home. You, you kind of have to admit that when you're sitting at home on your couch, uh, you're looking at your phone. So when you head to the theater for something a little more artistic, a little more challenging, a longer movie, for instance, I think... A lot of people are finding that uh, with The Irishman, Martin Scorsese's film on Netflix, they're finding that a three-and-a-half-hour runtime in your house, it's a little hard to pay attention. But I think if you sit in a theater, you're in a comfortable seat, you've got your popcorn, you can really kind of fall into a movie and enjoy some of those bigger, longer, and more challenging movies. And let's talk about Netflix and Amazon. And, and you think about Roma last year. So, you know, these are new players on this landscape or in this landscape, and uh, they're, they're really making their mark. And I, I, again, go back to The Irishman, as you did. How can you, mm. how can you beat the four people that I'm going to mention, De Niro, Pacino, Pesci, and Keitel. They're all in The Irishman. It really, it is an outstanding cast. Yeah, and it's wild. This, I mean, Roma was kind of their big first step into getting awards, but this year they, they've absolutely doubled down. I think The Irishman is already a real front runner. Uh, coming uh, right away, we've got Marriage Story, which is also a big uh, push for awards season. In January in Canada, they're releasing Uncut Gems, the uh, Adam Sandler starring film, which has been sweeping a lot of critics' awards. I mean, they've also, interestingly, got a Michael Bay film coming in December. On December 13th, they've got Six Underground. It stars Ryan Reynolds. It's the big kind of explosion Michael Bay thing you want. They've got The Two Popes, so they've got a very arty film. So, yeah, they're, they're really coming hard in December. You can see both from an awards standpoint uh, and, and just from a getting viewers who they know are at home to watch things standpoint. Uh, and Amazon as well, they have The Report, which is already out. That's kind of their big Oscar play with Adam Driver as well. He's, so he's uh, splitting his time between two streaming services, uh, both vying for Oscars. And there's also buzz surrounding Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jojo Rabbit, Bombshell, It's a Beautiful Day, Hustlers, The Farewell. Uh, and when it comes to actors and actresses, Joaquin Phoenix, even young Roman Griffin Davis from Jojo Rabbit, you think about Renee Zellweger uh, from Judy and Aquafina from The Farewell. <laughs> what else are you hearing? Uh, well, you know what? It, it all The landscape keeps changing. It's quite interesting because, yeah, I mean, uh, coming out of TIFF, you would have thought it was for sure Joaquin Phoenix, probably Best Picture Jojo Rabbit, Renee for sure. 
But now a lot of the critics awards are coming out and both remembering things that people have forgotten and also being a little more diverse than people expected. For instance, uh, the New York Film Critics Circle just came out. They're one of the oldest institutions. They have a lot of people in the academy, so a lot of people watch them closely. And they chose uh, Lupita Nyong'o in Us as their best actress in, in quite an upset, which people didn't expect. Also, Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory, a foreign film, uh, I remember that having a lot of buzz, but uh, I think it, I kind of thought it fell by the wayside. But you're absolutely right. Joe Pesci especially mm. seems to really, really be cleaning up for the supporting actor. And you know who else is making a name for himself again? Sam Rockwell, both in Jojo Rabbit and Richard Jewell. Yeah, you know what? Richard Jewell is a very interesting one because, once again, Clint Eastwood just makes these movies kind of quietly <laughs> and releases them in perfect time for award season. And a lot of people remember a movie that came absolutely out of nowhere was Million Dollar Baby, and it went on to take home so many awards. And, and I've been hearing really good stuff about Richard Jewell. Uh, and, yeah, absolutely, there's multiple uh, talk about screenwriting, about all the, the different actors. It's a really stacked cast as well. Do people envy you your job at Hollywood Suite, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I think that they do, but I think also sometimes when they look at the amount of movies I watch, <laughs> they start to question whether they would enjoy it quite as much. Off the top of your head, uh, and I know that there's still time before we hear the Oscar nominations, but what do you think could be the front runner when it comes to Best Picture? I think right now uh, it's probably The Irishman. Uh, it, it seems to just have really good favor among uh, people in Hollywood. Um, maybe the Netflix of it all might hurt it, but uh, the only other thing I would say is Toronto and its People's Choice Award always is a great indicator, and it went to Jojo Rabbit, so I would never count that one out. And what is your favorite holiday movie? Oh, my favorite holiday movie is actually one that I think a lot of people forget is a holiday movie, and it's my favorite movie, period, is uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Um, it it's, takes place over Christmas and New Year's, and it's just such a, like a wonderful dark comedy and romance. Is that uh, with Jack and Lemmon yeah. and with Shirley MacLaine? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the two of them are falling in love, and it's kind of dark circumstances. <laughs> I always suggest it to fans of Mad Men. It's a really wonderful 60s piece. You are fascinating to speak with, and I really appreciate your thoughts, your opinions, and the fine work that you do. By the way, how does Hollywood Suite factor into all of this? Well, uh, I work for them full-time, both uh, making shows. For instance, we have a new show called A Year in Film coming out that uh, deals with film history, and also uh, doing a lot of on-air content. So if you ever watch Hollywood Suite, it's on free preview right now, by the way. Uh, so most people should check their cable systems. Uh, you can see me between the movies, kind of giving a little context and uh, promoting movies you maybe never heard of. Cam Maitland. Film and content specialist at Hollywood Suite. Someday, you and I will meet as the lights go down and the curtain goes up. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including Girls, Inc., Jim Lang fills us in on their fine work to inspire smart, strong, and bold girls. While there are many different charities in York Region uh, geared towards different segments of the population, but one that really helps, especially young girls, um, 
preteens, teens, early 20s, is something that really empowers them. Girls Inc. of York Region, and I really like what they're doing. I'm thrilled to be joined by Barb Wallace, their executive director. Barb, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. This is a fascinating thing because my wife and I, we have teenage daughters, and the whole idea of empowering women and making sure that they can reach their potential is something my wife and I are very passionate about. And in the hashtag Strong, Smart, Bold, tell us about how Girls Inc. came to be. Well, Girls Inc. has been running in York Region for, we'll be celebrating our 40th year now in 2020. Wow. We started out as being big sisters of York Region, and we merged with a larger organization, Girls Incorporated, which is an international organization, uh, running both pro, uh, organi- chapters sorry, in uh, Canada and the U.S., and the... Um, the vision is to inspire all girls to be strong, smart, and bold. And what we want to do is we want to encourage girls to stay in school, to become self-sufficient, to be strong both physically and mentally, to learn to stand up for themselves and others, and as well learn those, work hard, learn those topics that are a little bit more challenging, study those STEM or STEAM topics, which are science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, Hmm. and really look for careers in those areas, which are careers where that are going to be um, going for a very long time. So, you know, I think about this as 2019 is about to turn to 2020, Barb, and we assume that, well, it's so much better now for young women in Canada and New York region. But obviously, there's still work that needs to be done to make sure that they are reaching for the physics or academics and not be intimidated. Like, no, there's no such thing as that's a guy thing. It's an anyone thing. It's an anyone thing. And girls do excel in those topics. They just have to break through the barriers, the stereotypical barriers of girls aren't good in math and science. Yes, they are. And we want to encourage girls to study those topics and to really uh, search for careers in, in those areas. Now, what I do like is you guys have after-school programs, programs and PA days. So for a parent wondering, I'd like to see my daughter take the next step, you have programs in place to sort of teach them a foundation of what they need to know. We do. So we're doing the after-school programs. We've got PA days. We're doing a March break camp this year. Oh, fantastic. And we do uh, workshops and lunchtime programs in 18 schools throughout York Region. Oh, so they don't even have to leave the schools. They don't the even school. have to leave the school. So if the school is interested in a program, they just have to contact us at info at org. And there's a new girls club, girls age 6 to 12, and a girls group 13 to 16, because they're very different dynamics depending on the age of the teenage girl. Exactly. The teenage girls really don't want to do the same activities as the younger girls. So we have an opportunity to, to break them out into their own group. It's a Wednesday evening group, and they get to talk about topics that are more relevant to them. We have some homework help. We also do some leadership building, leadership skills, with them and possibly uh, give them an opportunity to get their 40 hours of volunteer service. Well, yeah, that, and that, which is very important for high school kids in the region, isn't it? It is. Um, that's important for them because they need that to graduate. And we'd like to make it a meaningful contribution where they're actually learning something, getting something out of it as well. The hashtag that you guys have trending, smart, strong, bold, and you have hoodies and T-shirts and hats that sort of celebrate it, Barb, it, you think it's a given that it's okay for a young woman, no matter how she looks like, to be smart and strong and bold, but we still put labels on girls as they're growing up. And how do we get beyond that? 
We really have to le- uh, teach them to focus that it doesn't matter what you look like. What matters is how you feel and how you treat others. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I, I hate to say it. I mean, I see with her own daughter, she's in grade 11, that I mean, bullying is still a problem in schools in the region. Bullying is a huge problem. And sometimes it's girls bullying other girls or it's a group mentality. And girls, we need to teach them to stand up for themselves and to stand up for others that are being bullied. Are you getting feedback, not just from the, the girls who are part of the program, but the parents telling you, Barb, thank you guys so much? We do. We do hear a lot from parents. Parents are really happy to have their girls in our program. They want them to continue as they get older, and it gives them an opportunity to give back, to volunteer, um, and to carry on through. There's also scholarships available for oh. girls going from grade 8 to grade 9. And we have scholarships for university through Girls Inc. International Office in New York. Oh, I didn't even know that. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it's a really wonderful opportunity for girls to receive $20,000 U.S as they go off to university. So that's a huge chunk of change. Well, I have a daughter that's (laughs) in the STEM program at Guelph University, and believe me, it's needed. (laughs) He's at a child at university, Barb. (laughs) Speaking with Barb Wallace, one of the executive directors of Girls Inc. York Region, doing such great work with young women in the region. Um, You guys also do fundraising. It's not just getting together. What are some of the charities that you direct your fundraising ideas and sort of energy towards? Well, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to raise money to support the whole girl. Mm -hmm. So we have um, raised money to support our scholarship fund, which helps uh, cover off the fees for our summer camp and PA day programs for those girls that have uh, coming from a lower income. Mm -hmm. And we also help support if they need extra homework help, we can help support some of the tutoring costs. But really what we're trying to do is cover off extra help so that we can have more more staff in the programs. And really, because Girls Inc. is a registered not-for-profit charity, any donations, you would receive a tax receipt if you donate to Girls Inc. Is the response from the community, response uh, from, I mean, because York Region is changing demographically in the last 40 years. Is it still stronger? People still like, hey, I, this is great. I need this. I want my daughter to be part of this. This is really important work. They really are. Uh, York Region has been really supportive, particularly around Aurora and Newmarket, where our office is based in Newmarket. But we are running programs throughout the whole region. We're in Markham District High School. We're down in Kleinberg and Woodbridge. And we're up in Georgina running a program on the reserve on Georgina Island for First Nations girls as well. And Barbara, as you would know, um, depending on what area of the region you're in, each of those girls in that region are facing different challenges. Exactly. We're dealing with um, newcomer girls. We're dealing with girls that are still finding uh, their space and and also lots of people that are moving into the region that Mm. aren't connected with any services. Contact information. People are listening to this, Barb, like, I would like my daughter to be part of this. How do they get a hold of Great. you guys? Okay, so you can go on our website, which is girlsincyork.org, or you can email our info line, info at girlsincyork.org. Girlsincyork.org. Very simple. Very go on the website. Barb Wallace and her team are doing great work in the community. The hashtag smart, strong, bold with your efforts, Barb, and your, your team's effort. You're going to create this whole sort of team of strong, smart, and bold young women coming out of the region doing good things in the community. Yes, we are. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barb.
You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for a replay. In less than a couple of weeks, the kids will be home for the holidays, but you probably don't want them staring at a screen throughout their break from school. But managing screen time isn't just about setting limits. Tina Cortez explains. Kelly Newcomb is the founder of BraveParenting.net, a resource for parents trying to navigate the digital world. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you, Tina, so much for having me. Now, you're also the author of the book, Managing Media, Creating Character. What will parents learn from your book? Well, at the core, I want them to realize how much their role modeling of their own media use, their own screen time use, really impacts their children. And it starts, of course, when they're young. They grow up watching, seeing mom and dad on the phone. So really becoming cognizant of that. But then also ways that they can use the technology that kids love. You know, they love the screen, the tablet, the television, the video game, all of those devices. But how can we allow them to use that and experience and learn through that while maintaining this integrity and this good character, allowing them to really develop self-control and patience which very often when it comes to screens is not what we see kids developing, you know, a lot of times, a lot of impatience and instant gratification. Um, so it's practical ways to start conversations with our kids about how, what kind of character we want them to grow up, you know, having and possessing while they're engaging with the screens and the media. Okay, so then let's begin with a, a few of the, the simple questions. Can we actually, as parents, reduce the amount of screen time, or is this a losing battle? <laughs> it's a good question. I think that it is possible. It's really all about the standard that you set in your home. Now, different parents are going to have a, a different standard, and that's all great, um, but it's really about maintaining that and not losing that sense of control. So for our house, um, we don't watch a lot of television, and if we do, the standard is that we're watching it together, and it's not, you know, on while we eat dinner or during meal time, but that it's more of a, a bonding and a relationship time that we're watching a TV show or something together. Now, when it comes to their personal phone and devices, a lot of it is just setting the example. When we're in a conversation with our child, am I going to scroll my phone, check my email while they're still talking to me? Of course not, right? I don't want to set that to big example. I want them to be, to be fully present. And so when we exemplify that to our kids and they see that, well, if nothing else, they still may be on the screen. We know that there's so many things that they can do, but we can reduce it during the times that matter most, which is when we're in relationship with other people, you know, keeping that human connection always going. So time limits on apps and putting your phone up at a certain time at night, you know, enabling bedtimes. Those are all great tools that work good to help sort of be an adjunct to our kids' self-control. Um, but in the end, the phone and the tablet all and the computer, all of it has so much that maintains our daily life now. It, it is going to be harder and harder to decrease it. But our goal is really to make sure that, it's being used purposefully as a tool and that we're not neglecting the relationship. Now, you mentioned that, you know, all-powerful cell phone. Is there an age where it's right to uh, purchase a phone for a child? It's a very popular question that I get a lot. And 
every child is different. You may have a very mature 12-year-old who may be either involved actively in a sport that you're leaving them, maybe on a field or a court somewhere, and then, you know, you're not coming back for a couple hours. Um, or maybe they're babysitting already younger children, and they need to have a phone. When there's a need at a younger age and they're mature enough to handle it, I think that it's absolutely okay to do that. But, of course, we're not going to give them an open, fully accessible to the Internet and every app that they want. That's why a lot of the the built-in limits and the third-party monitoring can be really beneficial to enable that younger child to have that phone but to not really get into a whole lot of dangerous areas. A lot of movements, you know, say wait till eighth grade. I have waited uh, myself with um, many of my children till that age, and I think that is a very good push. Around 13 or 14 does seem to be an age that is good to introduce to that. They're ready for that social connection with their friends. Um, But at the same time, there may also be some kids who are really bent on rebellion and getting around every parental control and I have one of those children, and they may not be ready for that until, you know, maybe 16. So there's not one specific right age, but it really depends on the maturity and readiness of the child and the parent because when you give it, you can't just give it and walk away. The parent has to be involved in teaching to use it as a tool and not a weapon. And let's talk about that parental involvement. What do you think about parental controls that are often available to parents? Are they are they intimidated by it? Are they easy to use? What do you what do you want to say about that? Right. So I love the parental controls that are offered for both Apple and Android. And Apple is a little bit more user friendly. And then there's obviously ones that you can pay a monthly fee for. I love Bark. Um, Bark doesn't necessarily um, apply time limits so much, but it really reviews content in case there was something um, concerning about maybe a suicide thought or a depression text message that contains bullying or some sexting type of content. Bark would notify the parent, and not only do they notify saying, hey, here's some concerning content, but it also gives you points on how you can talk to your child and engage in an open conversation about that content. That's really what we need because we as parents can't spend hours looking at what they're looking at. We can talk to them. We can say this is the type of content that is inappropriate. We don't want you to engage with this. But, you know, kids are curious in that young teen years, and it's hard and very tempting to not get into those dangerous areas or know how to handle it if you do get into it, maybe a bullying situation. So as far as parental controls go, I think they're extremely beneficial and effective for parents to use, especially during the middle school, early high school years. I do recommend as they get older, of course, we want to launch our kids, whether it be into college, whether it be a gap year, a job, a career, whatever that is, with the ability to self-moderate and self-control. And so a lot of times we have to really release those parental controls and allow them more full access so that they can practice that while they're still in your home in the safe space you know, lest they go to college and spend the entire class time on their phone instead of actually learning and engaging in the education that you're paying for. And it's not a good idea to completely deny them access to technology. Would you agree with that? Because, you know, they do need to be digitally literate, whether they're going to high school or college or the work environment, they need that experience. I do believe, absolutely. Um, Now, if you look at how children use their technology, namely their smartphones, 
the number one in two ways is playing games and social media. So that's the concern is when you think about, oh, sending Snap, Snapchat streaks or trying to win on Fortnite or these you know, popular things that are pulling them in and they're spending a lot of time on, is that actually making them tech savvy enough to like move that into their future career? Not necessarily, but absolutely there are definitely ways to navigate communication, which is only going to become more and more digital as we move forward, making sure they know how to access information for research as well as, you know, simple things such as, you know, Excel, Word, all of those basic programs that we would expect someone to use when they got to college or when they got into a job. But ultimately, we just, I think that, yes, they need it, and I don't think it's a good idea to deny it completely. Again, it's having a lot of open conversations and demonstrating that it's being used for a purpose. It is a tool. It's not just, you know, a toy for entertainment but that it can be used to really be more productive and, and for good and not just for entertainment. Now, in your book, you suggest that you could use technology to help your child develop patience, respect, kindness, honesty. How do you do that? <laughs> That's a good question. So, for example, let's look at patience. It's the first character trait I talk about in the book. When we have a young child who is maybe throwing a fit at the grocery store or you're trying to have a conversation at, over a meal with either your spouse or a friend and that child is like nagging, 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 and you just are like, okay, fine, here, here's my phone. Play on that so that I can continue my adult conversation. Well, whose impatience is that really? Ultimately, it's us as the parents' impatience. You know, our child is just wanting what children want. They want to be entertained. They want engagement. They want your attention. So one way that we can do this first, you know, starts when they're so young is to practice patience ourselves and to demonstrate patience. I understand that, you know, you are not enjoying yourself right now, but I'm in the middle of an adult conversation and I would like you to be patient and wait for five minutes until this is done and then we will go and do something else, right? It's, it's, talking, it's communicating, I need you to practice this character trait of patience because I'm not just going to pacify you with a screen, but we actually have to work at developing these character strengths. They're like muscles. Unless they're worked over and over again, they don't become strong enough to be seen. Because our daily lives revolve around the screen, there are numerous opportunities throughout a parent's day um, to talk about how these character traits can relate to the screen. There's so much more we could talk about, I'm sure. If our listeners want more information about braveparenting.net or to get a copy of your book, Managing Media, Creating Character, where can they find it? Yes, you can purchase the book at Amazon.com, obviously under Managing Media, Creating Character. Um, we do have a podcast as well, the Brave Parenting Podcast. You can find us also on Facebook at Brave Parenting Network. And again, the website, braveparenting.net. Thanks so much for joining us on the feed, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, please head to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thanks for listening.